Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show. But if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. All right, today on a special episode of Thank You For Your Service podcast, we welcome Jake Tapper, author of the book, The Outpost, and Rod Lurie, the director of a movie of the same name. We also welcome Medal of Honor recipient, Ty Carter, who advised on the film, Daniel Rodriguez, who played himself in the film, as well as Stoney Portis and Katie Kopp, who saw others play themselves in the movie. For some Americans, it might seem like just another war movie, but for those who experienced it and those who are with us today, for many of them, it was the worst day of their lives. We're really grateful to all of you for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service and for sharing your stories with us and with our listeners. We're releasing this conversation as a podcast and as an on-demand video. For those of you listening, if you want to go see the video, And it'll hopefully mean that a lot of people will be able to share in this conversation. We're going to talk in some detail about what happens in the movie. So be warned, if you haven't seen it yet, you might want to wait and go watch it and then listen to the podcast or watch this video. With that, we'll dive in. So the movie The Outpost depicts the Battle of Kamdesh at Command Outpost Keating in Nuristan Province, Afghanistan, in early October 2009. 79 American soldiers and 42 Afghan soldiers held off an attacking force of more than 300 Taliban. Eight U.S. and four Afghan soldiers were killed, and 20 U.S. soldiers were wounded in the battle. The movie also shows what life was like at Keating in the months leading up to the battle. Jake, you actually appeared on this podcast last year to talk about writing the book. What did you notice going from the book to actually watching the movie and seeing these scenes play out? What was different? Uh, seeing this on the screen as opposed to on the page. Well, I mean, it's uh, it's obviously different because it's a, a recreation uh, featuring other people as opposed to just using the actual sources. I think Rod did an amazing job, Rod and the producers and the veterans who helped make sure that he got it as right as he could get it. And it's been so heartening to hear veterans in general and veterans of Cop Keating talk about how right Rod got it in terms of the dialogue and the rest. I've heard some, so many veterans talking about how much it brought them back to, to, to things, to, to, to battle. But obviously it's, you know, it's not Clint Romache, it's Scott Eastwood. It's not Ty Carter, it's Caleb Landry Jones. Um, so that's a little different. And then obviously we had a, you know, 500 page book or so that we tried to make it into a two hour movie. And so there's some conflation. Ben Keating, who was there in 2006, Rob Yeskis, who was there in 2008, are, you know, kind of put into the same narrative, which I think serves a larger truth, but isn't strictly narratively precise. So, you know, getting, getting used to those differences was something, as a guy who comes from the world of nonfiction, and I was something of a, of a, a diplomat and emissary to the families to make sure that they knew what was coming and why it was coming. And Rob reached out to make sure that the Keatings and the Yeskis family were fine with this addition. Uh, but beyond that, I have to say, like, you hear so many stories about nightmares of Hollywood adaptations, and this was about as smooth as it could have gone. And uh, I'm really proud of the movie. I mean, I'm really, really proud of it. Proud of the book, uh, which was obviously, you know, my work, uh, not a group effort, but I'm proud of this film. I think it's incredibly powerful. And I think Rod and the screenwriters and the producers and Ty just did a really amazing job. And when people look back at this era and they want to talk about the Afghanistan war, I think this is a movie that, that if not the movie, that people will watch. So, Rod, we're, we're curious about your perspective on this, too, then. You're a filmmaker. What does film do for telling this story that's unique to what the book can do for telling the story? 
Well, I, I think the most obvious thing is that can put you right into the middle of the action and, and uh, a better medium than any, than any other medium to demonstrate what it was actually like to be there. I mean, nobody's going to ever put anything that'll match the real life, not even close. But this is, I think, the, the closest. Uh, it lets you hear the sounds of what it was like to be there. It allows you to actually see those mountains that these guys had to live within. It allows you to feel the palpable fear. And, and we shot in a style that was intended and, and rather uniquely intended to demonstrate uh, that intensity and to, uh, to, to provide an immersiveness that you simply are not going to get from a book. Although I must say that there are sections of uh, Jake Tapper's book that are among the best military uh, warfare writing that I have ever read. For example, um, the death of uh, Bostic is pretty unbelievable. It's pretty, um, uh, it's rather remarkably written, or the, um, the actual battle itself. I have, since I graduated from West Point, there has never been a day where I've not had a military book on my nightstand. And I would say that Jake's book is probably probably one of the 10 best books about Americans in combat uh, ever written. And a part of that is due to the fact that uh, he gives you a you are there feeling. But on film, it's going to be much, much more, obviously. Did you take visual cues at all out of what Jake had written? Well, well, yes, we, we definitely took, uh, you know, visual cues. But mo- most of the visual cues came from speaking with Ty Carter or speaking to uh, Daniel Rodriguez or speaking to Stoney, to the people who had, who had actually been there. Um, and, and, you know, they would be there and they would, like Ty would tell me, you know, the bullets came from over here, not from over there. Or this is where the Taliban popped up and this is where Brad Larson shot these two guys. And so uh, by having Ty Carter there and, and by having Rodriguez there and, and uh, Chris Cordova, the, the doctor that was on the base, uh, was there. And so was Stoney. I mean, they were able to give us some unbelievable precision with which we could create, as you call them, those visual cues. Ty, so you had this experience of actually living through the battle and then seeing you're like brought to um, life and reading uh, through the book and then actually watching someone play you on screen. How well do you think the movie told your story? With the, with the differences of combining three separate units into one and they rebuilt the entire compound almost exactly. I think they did an excellent job. I... I was a little skeptical when I first met Caleb Landry Jones, but he did an excellent job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Total opposite of me in personality wise, but it matches it so well that when I'm starting to get anxious or not feeling normal, I use it as a type of uh, counseling. Cause when I was working with uh, uh, Katie cop or captain cop back then, it was, you have to kind of, talk it out, talk, keep on talking it out. It's like, uh, opening a wound, bleeding it out just so it could, you know, heal up kind of thing. So instead of, uh, having access to counselors 24 seven, I will actually go on Netflix and play the Medal of honor episode, or I'll watch the movie now, or I'll even, uh, I got a, the DVD of the interview that, uh, Jake Tapper did with me, uh, when I first received the medal, these kind of things bring up the emotions on my terms, on my time so that they don't creep up on their time to where I have an emotional reaction and I'm very uncomfortable in a public spot. So this movie has been an excellent tool for me. And a lot of individuals have uh, contacted me, thanking me. And also, you know, saying, Hey, you know, thank you for your service. You're a hero. And I kind of try to nod and smile. Okay. But in the end, it's a huge educational tool because it's so accurate. So very proud of the movie, happy with what uh, Rod did with everything. And uh, I'm glad I was able to be a part of it. When was the first time you saw the movie? Were you with everybody else? Um, were people, did the people from the unit come together? What was that experience? I, uh, I think we had a screening. I saw part of the movie uh, before everything came out. It was the, I guess, sections to show everyone what it's going to feel like. Uh, and so I saw part of the movie before we were done filming or before I left that area. And I think it was the uh, original screening for the families on the anniversary the 10 year anniversary. And that was with fellow unit members. They still had, you know, add mountains here, add Taliban here. 
and stuff like that. So, but the thing that got me was that with that first time where I saw parts of the movie and uh, one of the uh, guys that helped build the set was sitting behind me and I didn't know I was doing it, but I was like this, I was kind of like, you know, ducking and bobbing and weaving. And he was thinking, oh, maybe I should, you know, hold him down so he'll be okay. And he's like, wait a minute. He's actually in the battle in his head right now. If I touch him, he might kill me. So that's that's how I reacted to it. And uh, so that shows how how much you are placed in the battle and how surrounding or encompassing it is. One of the things that the movie really portrays well, I think, and that really struck me is uh, actually communication with loved ones back home. So one of the hallmarks of recent operations is the ability for families to communicate much more frequently um, with deployed loved ones, which can be a real blessing, but also introduce additional stress. The first dialogue in the movie focuses on Medal of Honor recipient Clint Romache advising others not to even think about their wives and girlfriends. And then there's a montage scene shortly before the battle begins where everyone's on the phone home to their loved ones. And so, Stoney and Katie, I wanted to get both of your thoughts on this to start. I wonder if you could each comment on that distance between soldiers and their families, on those scenes, on sort of the broader theme itself. You know, what do those conversations show the viewers in the film? And I'll start with Stoney here. Yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that, uh, we, you know, we did have the ability to email and call from Cop Keating. And soldiers, some of them, you know, tried to speak regularly a couple times a week. Others, you know, were maybe more as Romache was depicted in the film. I don't know if that's how Clint was uh, in real life. But, uh, you know, a couple of weeks, that would have been, you know, like myself. I think that it's difficult, though, to capture uh, as a soldier who's deployed and facing combat on, and, and a threat on a daily basis. It's difficult to capture the details of the the day-to-day, sometimes monotony, and other times uh, absolute and utter uh, stress and fear to your loved ones back home, and, and even the question of whether or not you want to. You know, a, a pretty powerful story is when we got back from Cop Keating to Fort Operating Base Bostic when we'd first left the outpost, and we, uh, we asked our soldiers to go and just touch base with their loved ones back home because it had obviously been a while. We actually stayed at the camp for several days before we got out. One soldier uh, emailed back home just a quick update and said something to the tune of, you know, we're going through all this over here and no one gives a shit. And to me, there's a lot in that statement that talks about not only what that soldier could not communicate, but also, you know, the pent up angst and frustration of not being able to communicate that and perhaps not having people back home who could understand it. Now, the response was absolutely overwhelming. You know, we, we got supporters from the American Legion and the VFW and Defenders of Freedom who all got together and would make these huge banners that said, we give a shit. And they would, you know, send supplies to resupply uh, the depleted material and, and equipment that the soldiers had lost in the war. And so, you know, we felt a pretty amazing response to that. But that one statement, you know, we're over here and no one seems to give a shit, really captures, I think, the frustration. So, Katie, you're a psychologist and you worked with many of the soldiers from Cop Keating. What can you what can you tell us or, or can you shed light on sort of the family aspects of soldiers experiences of deployment and combat? Things that maybe viewers don't know about. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I think every soldier has to figure out what the balance is um, best for for their significant other or for their children if they have them. Um, you know, and we just think like it's a world of difference from think like World War II, where people were communicating by letter, you know, once a month or something like that versus now do you expect or want a phone call or an email every single day? Because then there's times where there is gaps in communication. And so then does that put everybody into a panic? And so maybe that's not the best expectation to set, you know, as far as what was happening, like back in Colorado, you know, on October 3rd, 4th and 5th, I only know secondhand um, from hearing how what the response was like on that end. But, you know, people know that if the worst thing happened, people show up at your house. And so if people haven't knocked on your door with, you know, two or three soldiers in uniform to tell you the worst thing has happened, then you have to assume that your soldier is at least still breathing. 
um, is not critically injured. And, and then you have to kind of hope for the best and wait until they have the chance to make that phone call and offer that reassurance. So certainly anxiety provoking on the home front. But again, when you're in theater, sometimes you have to make decisions to take care of yourself, even if that seems like it's potentially hurtful to the people back at home. So there's probably no no great decisions to be made in terms of how you communicate back home. Yeah, as we talked about earlier, um, Rod pointed out and Alice was talking about the realism of the movie. And I think that was one thing that really struck me as I watched it. Um, Just the way, you know, as somebody who wasn't at the battle, but as somebody who was in other battles, um, that you could almost feel being there. And that even for me, it brought back some of those experiences, just seeing people, you know, running with ammo cans and tripping and falling, like the temporary safety and the like breath of relief you feel when you duck for cover or get into, you know, Humvee all those things. D-Rod, I'm curious, from your perspective, as somebody who actually played himself in the movie, what was it like to sort of relive those experiences and actually actually act those experiences out? What did that What did that feel like for you? It was a lot safer the second time, that's for sure, <laughs> in some regard. <laughs> but it was it was daunting for sure. It was it was surreal. There was a lot of recreation, as everybody's already alluded to, of, of specificness and what what they brought to life on set there. So it was actually quite intimidating to resurface your emotions that were, you know, may have been damped over the years of, you know, as Carter kind of said, letting expressing or letting them bleed out whatnot. And that's kind of been me even speaking. So going back there and kind of going through it again was a little bit haunting, but I wanted to get it right. And, you know, making sure that the accuracy of it and the detail kind of rested on my shoulders I felt because you know me and Carter and only a few other people really had the voices to be like yo no this is how it was this is what it was like so it's just a credit to the team and you know Rod's vision and persistence to make sure that he was on the right trail and the right track as as often as he could and getting the right details so it was it was kind of it was it was spooky for sure to relive it but um it was cool to go back and and be able to just be part of something special that I think historically speaking in the short length of it has provided a lot of of insight and a lot of appreciation for what has been endured, suffered, and kind of elongated on those soils over there in Afghanistan. So it was a blessing. It was an opportunity that I'll never forget. And I'm very appreciative of it. And I think Rod had did an incredible job. And for somebody who survived it, it was difficult to relive it day to day. I I would wake up in my same bunk that I had filmed in and would like wake up from another scene shooting on the other side of the base. And, you know, I try not to look at the bodies laying on the ground or, you know, a friend that had died, I, you know, I would try to just tell him how it was. And then I'd shoot the scene and try not to look at it because, you know, it just gives you flashbacks and shit like that. So no, I I think at the end of the day though, it has been received well and I'm very grateful that I did it, but it was at the time kind of a, a pressure that I hadn't felt before, but upon leaving the set, it was like, it was worthwhile. I felt that I had given life to something that'll outlive me and uh, that hopefully it'll be appreciated for a while for the sacrifices made on its behalf. One of the great blessings that we had on this film was getting uh, Daniel Rodriguez into the film. This was something we decided upon and we had to convince him and convince his team to allow him to do while we were in uh, in preparation on the film. The the thing that uh, Daniel is leaving out there is that he had to be there to recreate the death of his best friend, uh, Thompson. Um, I refer to everyone by their last name because that's the only way that they were referred to on the base. In fact, I, I think people didn't even know your first name time until everything was done. But Daniel had to recreate that for us. And that day is one of the most profound days of my life as a filmmaker, as Daniel shows us very specifically how Thompson was shot, how he went down, what he did, how he tried to recover uh, the body. And I, w- I was struck, and, and there's going to be a but at the end of this. Daniel helped us very clinically and very coldly. He would say, this is how it happened. This is specifically how it happened. We turned the cameras on. Daniel gave his performance. But after it was all said and done is when I suspect and when I know that Daniel sort of fell apart. And that's what soldiers do. You know, they fight the battle. They do their thing. And they let their emotions get the better of them when it's all done. And it it was a a microcosm of um, a a soldier's internal court uh, watching uh, D-Rod do that. And and I suspect that, no, I suspect, I know that was the same thing with with Ty Carter. It was amazing having these uh, 
these people there, the film would be nowhere near what it is if they weren't there. Especially Rodriguez, because uh, it was not something we, we anticipated uh, before we got to Bulgaria to shoot the film. Jake, I heard you say on another interview with someone that something you learned in doing the research was that the the reason that soldiers fight at this point is for each other. And so you really convey in the book, and it translated very well into the movie, personalities and individuals, yes, but also this this unit culture and this sense of togetherness and this this sense of being a band. But I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, about how, how you conveyed that in the book, that culture of the unit, as opposed to just sort of the American individualism that we're so used to. I mean, I just tried to talk about the relationships between the soldiers and the conversations that they had among each other. And, you know, at the end of the day, their actions are what they are. I mean, you know, you can go down the list. Every one of them died. Every one of the one of the eight who were killed were killed either trying to protect their brothers or doing something to try to help them. I mean, we'll just go in chronological order. Uh, Thompson ran out to the mortars. He was killed. Kirk stood at the front of the camp to return fire. He was killed. Uh, Scusa ran out uh, to help provide ammo. He, he was killed. Martin and Mace and Gallegos were all trying to resupply the guys uh, stuck uh, at the LMTV, LMTV uh, provide them with more ammunition. They were killed. And then Hart and Chris Griffin were trying to rescue the guys in the LMTV and they were killed. I mean, every single one of them was trying to do something to help one of their brothers. The fact that they loved each other as they did and the fact that they did what they did for each other says it all. And I think one of the most poignant moments in the movie for me, and I don't even remember if it's in the book, to be honest, I think it might not be, is when um, Caleb Landry Jones as Carter is explaining to Katie Kopp that he did everything he could to save Stefan Mace's life, but Mace was not a friend of his. They were not friends. Not that they were enemies, but they just, they weren't friends. And, but that's what the Brotherhood of Battle was all about. So then I want to ask uh, Ty and Daniel and start with Ty. How did you help the actors develop that sense of individual and, and collective identity? You know, that's really portrayed well in the film. And so I, I wonder how, how you help them replicate that. I helped doing that by being very honest. Not only was I kind of a prick back then, but everybody was kind of a prick to me, so I didn't really get along with anybody. In fact, the only people that I kind of sort of did get along with was my roommate for a year, which was Griffin, and my weekend shooting buddy, who uh, I told him I would teach him how to reload ammo when we got back, and that was Scusa. So it, in the end, it... it Mace and I were not good friends. We weren't even close friends. In fact, most of the time he was a complete and total dick to me. Him and his friend, uh, uh, Copus, they would go out of their way just to mess with me. But when lives are on the line, all the petty things start to disappear. I believed in my heart that I was ever provided the situation of combat, that I would do everything I can to, uh, save a life. In fact, um, I was talking to, uh, uh Rod Laurie about where I got the inspiration. Well, as a kid growing up, I watched Saving Private Ryan. There's a scene in that movie where Opum or whatever, froze in fear trying to bring ammo. I told myself at that time, if I was ever in that situation, I would never freeze. And then there I was <laughs> hauling ammo across the base, believing that if I failed, those men would die, whether I liked them or not. They were wearing our uniform. They are my, you know, my brothers. We've known each other for like a year and a half, uh, Daniel Rodriguez, he's known them for even longer. And there's no way I was going to let fear, fear make me the cause of somebody else's death. Yeah, I think I'm a good mediator in kind of relation of like the, the dichotomy of it because I, of the, of the platoon and because I wasn't a cavalry scout, like I have my spurs, but I'm an infantryman. So I was attached to the cavalry, to this, to the Bravo troop. I was with Bravo troop 361, but I was an infantryman. So I was attached with red platoon, white platoon, blue platoon, but I was at Keating the longest. Like I was on the first bird in and I knew Carter when he got to the unit beforehand, like we went through the same rank. He's right. He was a prick. You know, a lot of people didn't like him. Probably still don't, but that that's what it is. The platoons make up just a cesspool of egos and attitudes, but all that eliminates when you are under fire. 
And all that kind of just goes to the side because you are all you have at the end of the day. And you realize that you're in a fight for something bigger, whether you believe in the purpose of boots on ground, but the bigger picture in my optic is getting your buddy home, getting out of there safely, seeing that seeing that once a week phone call again, seeing that letter again, right? And that's where, that's where the shift of reality comes in, which a lot of people need a dose of in this world today is somebody to shoot at their ass and be able to wake up and have some consideration. And it's to have a newfound appreciation of like, okay, that's my boy right now. Like we might have differences elsewhere, but we got to make sure we get home. And then when you start seeing your boys drop, anger changes, your demeanor and purpose. Some people cower, some people I get foot, I would get hot. So, at, you know, skipping, fast forwarding to the battle and kind of where that all went, like, you know, you just can't leave your boys out to drive. I think I can relate to you a lot on that tie is that I never wanted to, to not do enough. And I think that's what kind of haunts me still, but you know, you put yourself in that position. It doesn't matter. Like your boys are down, you're fighting for your life. Like you, everything's aside. It's any other environment of a work environment. You don't like people, but there's a problem. You got to solve it. Sometimes, sometimes you got to check your shit aside and combat. I think inflates that to a degree of hostility that not anybody, especially in a tie in our circumstances, Porter and all of us who've seen combat to the extent as we have in that experience, you're just like, all right, I don't care who you are, buddy. We got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> so that's kind of like what it boils down to, which um, I think does a very good job of depicting in the outpost and coming back to being like, nah, you know, we're real. We're soldiers. We're thick skin. Just because I've saved his ass and carried him out doesn't mean I'm going to take him out for a beer when we get home. Go fuck himself. There, there were there were a lot of uh, scenes in the movie that uh, I decided would be in the movie while we were shooting the movie. We improv many moments, uh, or not improv, but uh, I or um, Hank Hughes, who uh, helped out a great deal. He's, uh, he plays Brad Larson, actually was a soldier at Keating, but with a previous unit. We came up with many, many scenes on the spot, and a lot of them were intended to address exactly what we're talking about right now, which is building up the camaraderie or the hostility the guys may have had to one another during um, their stay at Keating before the battle. But the one that I think I'm, one of the ones that I'm most proud of is when uh, Ty is saying goodbye to Mace as he's badly injured and leaving on the, the medevac and only and he would succumb to his wounds uh, a few hours later. But where Ty leans in and Mace says to him, be good. He's not my intention there, and that was done on the spot, my intention there was not like, hey man, uh, be good, you know, like a, a way of saying goodbye. He's telling him to be good because he has seen something in Carter that nobody had seen before. He is seeing something that what Ty was capable of that nobody had taken into account before. And when he tells him to be good, he's talking about what you need to do for the rest of your life. And I think that Caleb takes that in as an actor and it's one of the more beautiful moments of the movie. Yeah, Rod, I want to pick up on some of this relationship and, the, you know, this theme of the different personalities, because you condense time a lot. Um, but one thing the unit definitely had was a lot of loss, a lot of rotation of commanders, um, a, lot of, a lot of pain in a very short amount of time, even before you get to the battle. But you didn't really pull punches, at least from what I could tell in your depiction of uh, the commanders who came through. But I'm curious, why did you choose sort of to use the change of commanders with the black screen with the name on it as a way to mark passage of time in the film and the way to mark these changes? What, what was behind your decision to do that? Well, my decision to do that didn't have to do so much with the passage of time as to emphasize the fact that these commanders were uh, sort of being targeted uh, one by one or that uh, when you lose a commander, that's probably the biggest morale hit in the gut that a unit that a unit can take. And also to demonstrate different forms of uh, of leadership, that they were all very, very different. Keating, who was not actually the commander of that unit, he was the executive officer, I believe, and uh, was very different from Yeskis, who was uh, very different from the person who we call Broward. By the way, Bostic was a commander there, and we Somebody didn't have time to tell his story, unfortunately. And, um, and very, very different from, uh, from Stoney. You know, all, all these guys were like, they were very different individuals, all targeted. Even, even Stoney was, because uh, it, truth be told, in um, one of the, this was a conflation, not a conflation, this was a, um, a fictionalization we made uh, from the battles that Stoney was there 
in the movie, he comes at the end of the battle, shows up at the unit. In uh, real life, he had been there for uh, a few weeks. And the reason he was not at the battle was that a couple of days previous, he had, correct me if I'm wrong, Sony, you got into a helicopter and the helicopter was hit and um, he, you had to land at Bostick and was, um, and was out of commission. So he was targeted. And so the, the targeting of the commanders, the difference in the commanders was the artistic reason that I took to uh, depict it that way, to turn into chapters. In the book, there's a lot of broader political context, and you hear about what's going on for McChrystal and for the president. You hear about how Iraq is the, you know, the first priority and Afghanistan is the distant second priority. There's a lot less of that in the movie. There's no mention, unless I missed it, of, you know, Bush or Obama or Holbrook, who is the special rep for Afghanistan and Pakistan. So I'm wondering if that was, you know, if that was a, a choice or if it also just sort of was a reflection of how irrelevant those people are to soldiers in that position. Fantastic question. It was very, very intentional to never we, we make one one mention of McChrystal and it's and it's done by uh, Eastwood as as Romache, um, which I think was relevant to the storytelling there. I wanted this movie to be completely apolitical. Now, if you know me and you've seen my previous films, you will know that I am very political and I have a very strong political point of view and I like to tell in my movies, but that would be a death sentence to this movie in particular. We don't want to lose half of the half of the country because we want to make a political message. And by the way, it will be an irrelevant political message because politics uh, had nothing to do with this. Jake Tapper is right when he discusses that brotherhood is really essentially what this movie is about and how brotherhood is what made those people who did survive, survive, and why the men who fell were, were, such, were such heroes. So if I decided to muck it up with discussing George Bush or discussing Barack Obama, it, it, would, it would be an enormous uh, mistake. We, we do touch on mistakes made within the military. The, the military leadership. At the end of the movie, you know, we, we discussed the investigations that were had and the conclusions that they came to. And it's very obvious. I think Jake will, I think you can confirm this, Jake. Probably the question that you and I get the most is, what the fuck were these people put there in the first place for? Right? Jake, am I right? That's probably the most common question you get. Uh, that's the question. And the truth is that that gets into a little bit into politics or at least into policy. Uh, and that's not in the film, but it is in the book, just as a factual matter. Why were they there? A, at that point in the war, 2006, when they set up Cop Keating, nation building was on the agenda. That was the goal. B, uh, they had to have small cops because most, they didn't have that many troops. Uh, most of the troops were in Iraq. C, they, in that part of Afghanistan, at the base of the Hindu Kush Mountains, you're either on top of the mountain or on the bottom of the mountain. And in order to have a cop on top of the mountain, you would need a lot of helicopters available. And D, there weren't a lot of helicopters available because they were all in Iraq. And so the politics of this did have to do with why was there that cop there in 2006? Why was it there in 2009? Also had to do with Afghan, Afghan politics, which, which they, they touch on in the movie which had to do with Karzai not wanting anybody withdraw any, any camps packing up before the election, et cetera. But that said, that is more appropriate, I think, for a book where a lot of politics can be discussed and, 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 and in, a, in a nuanced way where there really isn't, or it's not a polemic against Bush or Rumsfeld or Gates or Obama or anyone. And in the movie, what I liked about the story of Cop Keating from my book, and I think works even more so in the movie because of its kind of isolation and purity uh, in, in, the, in how slimmed down it is, it becomes a metaphor for the war in Afghanistan writ large. This is what we're sending our men to do. Go into very dangerous places, do unbelievable things, and in too many cases, we're not giving them the security and the support they need. And that to me is, one of the problems with this longest war that we've had. When we tested the movie, uh, which is something that you do when you complete a film, before you put it out there, you uh, research screening, we call it testing a film. And we ask the audience several questions and often that will affect what we do with the film and the editing process. But one of the things that we asked them was, 
Do you feel that this film has a political point of view? Do you know if the director is a conservative or a, or a liberal? And I will tell you, for the first time in my career, we got a response back that was at 100%. 100% of the people thought that the movie was apolitical. 100% did not know what uh, my political persuasions were as a result of the film. But you really have to understand, it's really unusual for me. It's like uh, doing an Aaron Sorkin film that's completely devoid of, uh, of any political persuasion whatsoever. You know, we were, we were very, very proud of that. I will add, though, that when I was at West Point, when I was a cadet at West Point, there was this extremely squared away upperclassman who was my squad leader. He was maybe one of the best cadets that had ever roamed the plains of West Point. His name was Mick Nicholson, and he was my terror. He was the guy who almost got me to quit the academy. He was so tough. He became the first captain. But he was the guy who set up, as a colonel, that set up these, these outposts which I thought was just a remarkable full circle for me. I couldn't believe it when I read in Jake's book. So Ty, one thing that struck me at the end of the movie, really the final scene is the, the character who plays you, the actor who plays you going to seek help for this. As Rod talked about before, sort of you see the, the breakdown happen. And in, in my own life, I had a similar experience. I, I actually spent about seven weeks going through treatment a couple years ago, getting a lot of EMDR and working through some of my own experiences. But I can't even imagine what this is like to have your story so public and so accessible to, to other people. I know this isn't new for you between the Medal of Honor and all the other media coverage, but what do you hope people take away from, from that scene? Or what did that scene mean to you? Well, first of all, that scene, um, I did not go to counseling. I was forced to go to counseling. My first counseling appointment with uh, Captain Katie Kopp I'm surprised any words actually got out because I was bawling my eyes out. Part of telling the truth about uh, this whole story and everything is that. I, it wasn't in the book and uh, uh, Rod asked me if it's okay if I put this in there. And I said, yeah, go for it. And I kept on saying, as long as it's honest and truthful or whatever, then I'm okay with it. Because this is kind of what people go for. Like you said, you kind of went through something like that. It took me two and a half years to be okay with myself in order to deploy again. So I had to figure out my own way. And part of figuring out your own way is, like I said, opening the wound, expressing it, let it, let it bleed out, um, let the healing begin. And sometimes that actually takes tears. I'm very happy how they did it and how it turned out because Kayla Landry Jones bawling his eyes out would probably not be very attractive. Katie, I'm curious about um, how you saw that scene from your perspective and whether there's anything else um, you'd want to say to anybody who's out there listening who is going through a similar experience or who feels like maybe they need treatment but they're not doing it or is struggling um, sort of quietly on their own like a, a lot of people have. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, of course, honored and just beyond um, excited that Rod chose to include that part of Ty's story um, in the movie because I know when it came out and, you know, watching some of the reactions on Twitter and people are like, oh, this is just going to be another like war porn film. And I'm like, no, it's not like it really shows the reality. And and the reality is that when people do things to, to put themselves in a position where they're awarded the Medal of Honor, like that means something absolutely horrible has happened. You know, it's it's a number of people's worst day of their lives. And, um, and there's consequences for that, you know, and, and it's not anything terrible or wrong or weak to say that you're seeking mental health treatment in the wake of something horrible. Um, and so I think for anybody who thinks that maybe they need this, you know, it's not, it's not also just for heroes. It's not, I think a lot of times people think, well, I have to wait until things are really, really bad before I'll go get help. And I'm like, no, 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 like, please come talk to us before things are really, really bad, because it's actually a lot easier to work with when you're not, you know, unemployed and drinking too much and your partner's left you. And, you know, let's not wait until it's absolutely worse. Like, I would say for anybody out there, you know, veteran or not, if you've got things going on and you think you need mental health treatment, don't feel like there's some threshold that you have to cross before you do so, you know, whether it's through the VA or through your health insurance or through community services, there's an abundance of resources out there and email me, hit me up on Twitter. Like I can help point you in the right direction if you need to find that help in your own life. I'd like to add something. Um, and I would like to help to get rid of the misconception of what, uh, counselors do. They don't, you know, 
go in there, cut out the bad stuff and you're okay. They're guides for you to help yourself. The more you're open, the more you're honest, the more you push yourself out there, the easier it is for them to guide you for you to help fix yourself. Stoney and I had an exchange on Twitter after I watched the movie a couple weeks ago. Um, and I went and found his New York Times piece that he wrote about watching the movie get filmed. And he uh, quoted another author who talks about the communalization of grief. And this is a civil relations podcast. We talk a lot about how civilians understand and interact with the military and vice versa. And the exchange that Stoney and I had was about how as a civilian, as somebody who's never been in combat, who's only been a battlefield tourist, I watched this movie and, and had a lot of emotions and did not know which ones were appropriate and which ones I was allowed to have. And I found what Stoney wrote really helpful. And so my question is just for those of you that were there and those of you that have served, you know, what is it that you hope that civilians who watch this movie who've never been through something like this, what do you hope they take away and, and how do you hope that they experience this film? You know, what do you hope that this film is for them? Look, I straddled both worlds. I, I wasn't there when the battle kicked off. I had been separated from the troop and I had to fight my way down the mountain with a group of reinforcements to get there. By the time we finally got there at 6 p.m., Clint Romache had already led the counterattack to take back the outpost. I had counted, you know, I stopped counting at 100 dead enemy Taliban, uh, which I, I got to 100 before I got to the gates of, of Cop Keating. But look, after I saw the movie, I had a lot of friends ask me that age-old question, which was better, Stoney, the book or the movie? You know, the truth is, is that, uh, you know, I've been telling this war story since October 6th when we got back to Fob Bostic, uh, but I told it in the form of condolence and sympathy letters home to the, the families of the soldiers we lost. I told it in the form of the awards that I wrote for the soldiers uh, who would go on to be recognized for their heroism as Daniel Rodriguez has and as Ty Carter has and Andrew Bunnerman and Clint Romache. And, you know, I could go on down the list. And, and I told this story again to the senior military commanders and some politicians who wanted to know what happened from the commander's perspective. But I also told this story as an outsider. And so when I saw the movie, when I read the book for the first time, for me, what was most impressed upon me was how each captured the essence of the sacrifice and the trauma that my soldiers had gone through. You know, I have tremendous respect for the people in this podcast. Two of my best friends in the world are, you know, Andrew Bunderman and Chris Cordova. And it wasn't until I saw Chris on set reliving his scene in the aid station. And it wasn't until I saw in the film Taylor John Smith, who portrayed Andrew Bunderman, that I really started to appreciate how hard that memory must be for them to relive. And so for me, I guess if, it, if we're going to take away anything from the book or the movie or the Netflix uh, episodes or whatever it is about these stories or any of the stories, it's that perhaps it will incite a true appreciation for, for what our soldiers, America's sons and daughters, go through and what we ask of them. I'll piggyback off that. I think, like you were saying, the communalization of grief is is what what we endure. But to kind of go back on it, it's you know, Rod made it. it it's it's great because it's apolitical by vote and sway. But if I think if you really break it down, even systemically further than that, right? Where where there's a veteran and a civilian life, like you like you were asking Alice beforehand. But I think under above that, working up, we're American. So I think if you actually have appreciation for your American patriotism, you whether what side of the spectrum or pendulum you swing on, you see this as brotherhood. Right. How we how we've already distinguished like the you might not have got along with the guy next to you. You might not. But it's the brotherhood. So I think the simplicity of the messaging in this feeling, whether whether you're civilian or or not, you know, like for me, I just I, I've always been like when people are like, oh, how civilian? Like, no, it's, like, it's just my life, mate. Like, you know, life choices led me into the military. My country was at a time of war during me not being able to graduate. And I was enlisted and sent off to Baghdad. So I was just a part of this. This is like whole full circumvent with uh you know rod's classmate having been the one put the bases there and jake telling you know there's there's a ton of things helicopters in iraq while we were sitting mountaintop there's a lot of things that you could put in but it's like i think the the the, the bottom line is like you have we have compassion as humans and i think this film came out at a very very important time of when we needed just to realize the humanity's sake of what we appreciate and value in ourselves in our country and i think this just opened the eyes to a lot of people whether you vote 
one way or another of like, damn, like those are our boys and, and women over there. Those like people are really struggling. This war is still going. Wait a second. Let me check. People are still in Afghanistan. I just watched a movie about this shit. That kid played him like this shit's real. So I really hope that this is just an eye opener of of what <laughs> what we're what we're going what the what chaos and clutter we are indulged in as Americans and we're consumed by. And I, 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 you know, I, I just, I, I think that it's, it's just, it's because I've gotten a lot of, I've, I've only seen it once. I barely saw it. I've barely made it through. I'm completely opposite. I don't really watch war movies. I don't do that shit. And I knew how, I knew it was going to happen. I signed up for it. I did it. I was out. Watch that. Don't ask me. But I, what the feedback I get, it's just like, yeah, yeah, no shit. You know, like these, these are our homies over there. Like we're just fighting. Like, you know, a lot of us are from different circumstances and that war brought us together. And hopefully this picture will bring a lot of more other people together when they see it. And that's just kind of how I feel about it. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, whose husband served and they watched the movie and they would stop the movie and he would talk about things from the movie that reminded him of stories from his life, from his various deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he would cry or he would laugh, uh, but he would relate. And that happened a lot. And this woman, uh, uh, what is it, a Blue Star, uh, Blue Star wife, thanked me, thanked you, Dan, thanked Ty, thanked Rod, thanked everybody, because the movie is facilitating conversation and growth. And even if it's only that one couple, and I know it's not, that's a lot. That's a lot. And, it's, and I have to say, I am... I will never be able to pay back the gratitude I feel to people like Ty and Dan. Dan, I think the first person I ever met with in person to discuss, I'd been doing phone interviews and Dan was in Virginia and we went to the Starbucks near the White House. He was a different guy than he is now. He was a little rough. He was a little rough then, he, you know, and, uh, and he's grown a lot. And I, I will always be grateful for these people for trusting me with their stories, trusting me to tell them. And, uh, you know, I know I'm going to be in touch with Rodriguez and Carter and Stoney. I know I'm going to be in touch with these guys for the rest of my life. They're part of my life forever. I'll, I'll just never be able to say thank you enough. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, kind of opposite of Jake, he gets to tell stories um, and I get to hold stories. Um, and I had the privilege of receiving um, you know, the stories of the survivors of the Battle of Camdash when they returned to Bostic. And we just spent several days, you know, with all of them telling me their pieces of the puzzle. And so when the film comes out, it is a chance, I think, you know, in some ways for some people like Ty, it can be therapeutic to, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to see what this all looks like again. And it is kind of an exposure therapy in that way. And then for other people, you know, my experience is kind of similar to what Jake described of this other couple where, you know, my, my family, of course, watched the movie and I watched it with them and it got us talking about things. And I, you know, I could share some of my own experiences, but also help them understand like the, the stories of the veterans that I worked with. And so it is absolutely like a conversation starter um, and it's a way for me to share some of the things that I don't have the privilege to talk about. Cause like I said, I'm a, I'm a holder of stories, not a teller. So I appreciate people like Jake and Rod stepping in and, and putting it out there for the rest of the world. I find maybe this will sound slightly political, um, but remarkably shockingly, we now find ourselves at the moment that we're recording this podcast, having to say that the military are worthy of being revered. And we shouldn't have to be reminded of that. The military and the soldiers that have voluntarily gone to fight on our behalf and for our freedom and for our constitution, these guys are people that should be honored and respected. And that's it, period. Now, I have found that this movie is very, very successful for a reason. And it is very, very successful film on, a, uh, on, a, on, on the metrics of uh, downloads and DVD sales. We are number one film of the summer in, in both respects. And I think that the reason for that is that there are millions of people who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan who have sat their families down, their girlfriends, their boyfriends, their husbands, their wives, their parents, their children, and said, finally, 
let me show you what it was like. And that's really important. And I believe that that is the reason for the success of the film. The military guys finally have a film they can recommend to one another. It's not just a, a shoot 'em up. You know, it is a shoot 'em up because it was a shoot 'em up, you know, to a certain degree. But we aim to not so much tell the truth as to be honest. And that was really important uh, to us. And I believe that we have uh, that we have achieved that. But I think that the person that should be uh, given the respect of the final answer to your question is Ty Carter, the recipient of the Medal of Honor. What I want people to take away from the movie is I want them to be educated, understand what's going on. I want them to be motivated to uh, talk about what this war is and how it's affected our country. And of course, it's a movie, so hopefully they get some entertainment out of it. And that's as basic as I can go. Yeah, well, the, the name of our podcast is Thank You for Your Service. And uh, sometimes people in the military and sometimes people who are civilians hear that phrase and think different things. Um, there are even a few times in the movie where that phrase is used a little bit sarcastically. But but I do want to say one thing here, both to, to Jake and to Rod, sincerely thank you uh, for telling this story. Because as, as somebody who you know, spent time in Iraq and spent 20 years uh, in the military, this, this really was the first movie that connected with me. Um, and to everybody else uh, who's joined us, Stoney, D-Rod, Ty, Katie, just sincerely thank you both for what you did uh, in Afghanistan, what you continue to do in your lives, um, but for being you know, willing to share this with, with us, uh, with the rest of the country. And if you haven't seen the movie yet, I, I can't recommend it more. It's on Netflix. It'll be on Netflix on October 1st. Thank you so much. And if uh, unless you have anything else to add, no, I just also want to pile on my gratitude. I I really was amazed by the movie. Um, one of the questions we didn't get to expressed how it's not anything like any other war film. Um, and that's a really good thing. So just very grateful to you all for taking the time and for bringing us the, the story and the stories. You're very welcome. And thank you for listening to this special episode of Thank You for Your Service. You can find all our guests today on Twitter. Jake Tapper, Rod Lurie, Ty Carter, Daniel Rodriguez, Stoney Portis, and Katie Kopp. Jim and I are on there too. And you can also find the handle for the show at TYFYS underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.